Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Welcome to Women on the Line, one of Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs programs produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Areech Nord. Women on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nations. We also acknowledge Elders past, present and becoming, as well as the owners of the lands you're hearing us from. She walked towards you with her head down low She wondered if there's a way out of the blue Who's gonna take her home this time She knew that this time wouldn't be the last time On today's Women on the Line, we listen to two incredibly fascinating and insightful interviews put together by 3CR's Tuesday Breakfast team, Ayan Shirwa, Ruby Schwartz, and George Maxwell. We first hear from Julie Kuhn, CEO of WIRE, which is a women's referral organisation here in Victoria. And later we hear from Emma Bernard, who's conducting her PhD at the University of Melbourne on female genital cosmetic surgery. Here's Julie from WIRE explaining what WIRE is. WIRE is Victoria's only women's service that will speak and support any woman on any issue and we have a telephone support line and that number for that telephone support line is 1300 134 130 and it's open from 9 to 5 Monday to Friday but we also do supports by email and online chat and face to face and you can go to our website page which is www.wire.org.au and find out where we are. We're in Spencer Street in the city, so very um, central. Um, and we, we also have the Amica Club, a homeless women's um, homeless and isolated women's lunch and activity club. We do research, we do training, and we are a, a feminist organisation who works with women from a, a feminist perspective and respects the, the strength and integrity that, that women bring to their to whatever situation that, that they're facing, be it mm. family violence, be it homelessness, um, uh, you know, be it you know parenting issues, any issue, um, we'll work with that woman from their strengths um, and work with them with the options they want to achieve. We won't advise, we won't tell them this is what you mm-hmm. need to do, but work with them so they can work through to the solution they want to have. Yeah, it's such a great service and particularly that empowerment and feminist model. Mm, it's such a great thing. Definitely. So we're interested in talking today about the issue of sexism in the workplace regarding mm. women in pregnancy in light of mm-hmm. a recent survey conducted by Flex Careers which obtained data on the prevalence of pregnancy discrimination, found that 60% of women feel that taking parental leave negatively affected their careers and more than half reported bullying and discrimination. Aside from your work as CEO of WIRE, you worked in the union for seven years. What is your experience and understanding of this issue? Yeah, look, look, I think it's really important when we think about industrial relations in the workplace that we look at it from a feminist perspective and we put a um, gender lens over everything that we're looking at because I think once you do that, 
what you see is that women don't have a fair go and when they become... Well, it's even before they become pregnant. So women can be discriminated against just because they're considered to be in their child-rearing years mm-hmm. and people will make assumptions about whether they're going to have children. Um, and, of course, you know, there's, again, that discrimination of when they become pregnant, they're seen as distancing themselves from the workforce. Um, without it really being taken into consideration that at the moment um, men uh, don't have the capacity to get pregnant and mm-hmm. bear a child, but that's really not factored in. It is, is considered a weakness um, mm-hmm. in the workplace to be, to be pregnant, and you do see discrimination, and I've um, seen it over and over again. I've seen um, women passed over for promotion. In fact, you know, I... I myself am a mother, and when I was pregnant, I was told that I wasn't considered for a job promotion because I'd be going on maternity leave in three, four months' time. So it is, I really do believe those figures Mm -hmm. um, that they've provided, that it is as widespread as what what they say. And the other thing you find is that workplaces are just not prepared to reorganise themselves to any extent to accommodate someone who is pregnant or is returning to work after having a child. Yeah. Yeah, and it sounds like all these assumptions about what, you know, what motherhood means. Yes, that that's right. And and it is considered so much that if you have a child, what you're saying is my career isn't important mm-hmm. to me. Not instead of um I my family and my career is important to me when it uh a man has a child, they're not considered to yeah. have stepped away from the workplace. But a woman is. And an important aspect of the approach at Y involves understanding women's experiences as part of the yeah. broader social context in a patriarchal mm. society. What do you yeah. think are the broader social factors that may, might be influencing employers' decisions to sack women who are deciding to have a family? I suppose you've touched on some of those things already. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the, the fact that as a society, we don't value um, having, we don't value the role of being uh, a bearer of a child uh, and caring for that child. It is um, considered to be, in a, and I'll put a bit of a capitalist slant on it, it's considered non-productive from a capitalist perspective as well. Um, so someone who is productive is someone who doesn't bear children, is someone who doesn't involve in childcare, which is labour that they do for free. Mm. It's undervalued work. And if you considered an employer is looking for people that are go-getters and wanting to get a promotion and are prepared to do what it takes. If they see someone take on a role which they consider to be lesser than, then they're going to say, well, that person is not really serious. Yeah. And so there's all those gender stereotypes and those um, that, that discrimination that plays into um, how women are perceived in the workforce, again, whether they have a child or not, they're considered to, even if you never want to have a child, um, but you're in your child-rearing years, mm-hmm. you'll be seen as someone who's got that potential to devalue themselves. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point about that idea of separate, separate spheres and that undervalued work that goes on in the home. Mm, most definitely. And, and, and women mm. do far more labor, mm. um, unpaid labour than, than men. So again, you'll get women that are in the workforce and are rushing around an hour beforehand to get the kids ready for school. I speak from personal experience. Mm. Working very hard at the workplace and then are coming home and are doing 
housework and cooking and all those sort of things, yep. and they're considered unproductive. Yeah. Mm, slightly wrong there. <laughs> and um, in terms of policy, uh, we understand mm. that it's already illegal to discriminate against women who are pregnant. So therefore, yep. is there anything more that you think can be done to tackle this issue from, from a policy perspective? Uh, well, well, yes, you're right. It is illegal to discriminate against uh, someone on the grounds of their pregnancy or the fact that they're um, child-caring. But the, tr- but the truth is is that when these cases come before the, the Fair Work Commission or they become before um, discrimination boards, it's the onus on the person who's been discriminated against to prove what was the employer's intent, which is really right. difficult. Yeah. So a lot of these cases don't go anywhere. So it's one of those things of, well, if you break the law, the person you've discriminated against really needs to prove what you were thinking, which is incredibly difficult. So I think we need to change the rules that we have. So keep it that it's illegal, but make it easier for women to be able to demonstrate that they were discriminated against yep, rather yep. than saying, well, you've got to know what the employer was thinking and, and to be able to physically prove a yep. thought. Yep. So I think that's one thing that can be changed. Um, and, and definitely, I think, it, you know, make it the onus on the employer to prove that they didn't discriminate rather the other way, way around. The other thing that we need to do is... Um, we have policies in place for get um, for men to take um, parental leave. I think we need to push them more. The more that men can enter that space, it, it's a horrible thing to say, but the more that men can enter that space, the more the role of being a caregiver yeah. will be valued. Yeah. So, uh, and then it is basically we need to work on those gender stereotypes. We need to challenge them. We need to put new stereotypes in place Mm -hmm. that sees the role of child bearer and child carer as being as valued as being in the workforce. Yeah, that's such an excellent point about tackling those broader social reasons that might be, you know, but might be factors in in why this is happening. Yes, most definitely. Most definitely. Women's on the line. (laughs) Women on the line. Women on the line. (laughs) <laughs> any woman, any issue, one three hundred one three four one three zero www.wire.org.au got an issue, give us a call, send us an email, online chat us, visit our office, we'd love to hear from you. We just heard an interview by 3CR's Tuesday Breakfast team with Julie Kun, CEO of WIRE. Julie ends with the contact details for WIRE, an encouragement for women to get in touch with any issues they may be facing. We now hear another interview by 3CR's Tuesday Breakfast team, but this time on a totally different note. They speak with Emma Bernard, researcher from the Centre of Health Equity at the University of Melbourne, about her current PhD research, which explores issues around female genital cosmetic surgery. Here's Emma explaining what the term actually means. 
Um, so the term female genital cosmetic surgery refers to non-medically indicated cosmetic surgery that changes the structure and function of healthy external female genitalia or internally in the case of vaginal tightening. So this definition includes the most common procedure called a labioplasty. So a quick anatomy lesson. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so the labia are made up of two sets of skin folds where the labia minora are the inner skin folds uh, and a labioplasty is a procedure where the labia minora or inner lips are surgically reduced in size. Right. Mm. Okay. Um, and so I, I have been reading and hearing a lot that this surgery is becoming a lot more com- common. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you kind of can give us a bit of the lay of the land of, you know, what the <laughs> stats are at the sure. moment. Sure. All right. So... I guess the first thing to say here is that most cosmetic surgery, not just genital procedures, gets done in the private system. Right. So we don't have a really good, robust way to count what the numbers are. Yeah. So up until 2014, uh, we had some idea about what the numbers were realistically through Medicare data. Mm -hmm. So in the decade from 2003 to 2013, the numbers essentially or effectively doubled in Australia. Wow. So giving us sort of that doubling represented just over 12,000 total procedures. Wow. Um, But that, again, is likely to be an underestimate because it won't capture the full Mm. picture. Mm. And is mm. that is that following trends worldwide as well? Yeah, yeah. So we know that in the UK, for example, um, in a similar time frame, so between 2001 to 2011, they had a uh, five-fold increase wow. in the numbers of procedures um, done through the NHS. And in the uh, in the US, sort of more recently, we know that the figures have tripled. So that's between about 2011 and 2014. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. And, you know, I'm, I'm wondering in your opinion, like, why you think this is becoming so popular? It's <laughs> a good question. <laughs> I think it's a $64,000 question. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I think that the answer is a bit more complicated than it would be really nice to be able to single out one one reason um and I think the first thing to say here is that we don't have a in when it comes to sort of women's bodies and women's genitals there's a probably we don't have a good sense of what genital diversity means in that context Mm. um you know it's not something that's sort of routinely taught in schools as a part of sex education programs for example and we don't women's genitals are considered to be private so Mm. we don't see them we don't see um we don't see them you know on each other we don't see them in um representations in art and culture and when we do they tend to be quite stylized in the case of medical diagrams or airbrushed Mm. uh in the case of soft porn magazines Mm. so what, what we do see tends not to be Realistic. Has, it al- has it always been like that, that it's kind of this really hidden private thing that we don't see or speak about? I think so. And I think that there is a sort of a sense of taboo around women's genitals, sort of maybe more so than around men's genitals. And I think this is especially true of young women, that yes. their young women's genitals are completely off limits. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned um, kind of soft porn and <laughs> also, you know, the kind of airbrushing that we see. And George actually mentioned something really interesting. Mm. Is that about the 
pornography, the, the yeah. ratings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, I don't know if you, you can tell us more about this, but the idea mm. that if, if you are going to show more of the labia in porn, that becomes an R rating as opposed to an M one. Is yes, that right? yeah, it is. So there are um, legal requirements in Australia in terms of, and this is sort of mainly to do with um, soft porn, so magazines, mm-hmm. um, to do with, you know, how much skin can be shown. So genitals um, routinely do get airbrushed. Is it the same with with male genitals? Uh, there are rules around what what you can show in terms of male genitals, but yeah. I don't know about whether they get airbrushed in the same kind of a way. Right. Mm. So how do they justify yeah. that? I mean, do they explain? <laughs> Is it, yeah. Um, my understanding that the that the rules around and the wording around the uh, you know sort of what's required in terms of meeting the legislation is a bit vague, mm-hmm. um, and there has been a little bit written about this. Um, mm-hmm sort of more broadly but I think it's fair to say that in terms of people accessing porn and I guess we're going to get to the porn question in a moment um, that not everybody is reading soft porn magazines so I think that that's sort of something to take into consideration yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. so I guess jumping into porn then like what role role do you think that it plays in all of this Uh, again I think this is a bit more complicated than you know intuitively and it's been hypothesized quite widely that porn you know sort of by the medical community and in the popular media that porn must be playing a role here because it's quite an intuitive um, leap to make. But I think the picture is a bit less clear and it's a question that has intrigued some researchers in Australia who've tried to to kind of answer this question. And there has been no one definitive study that's been able to link kind of cause and effect, you know, sort Mm. of viewing porn to um, women wanting to get labiaplasty done. Um, I think it's fair to say that what the role that porn might play is to do with how people um, conceptualise what is normal. Right. Yeah. 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 So, that makes but it's, sense. it's unlikely to be a, a nice linear relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's definitely a good good PhD for anyone who's out there <laughs> listening who feels like undertaking that research project yeah. right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so speaking of PhDs, so mm-hmm. I actually found out about your research project because I got the kind of staff email I work at Melbourne University mm-hmm. as well, mm-hmm. um, talking about that you were kind of looking for participants. That's so can right. you just tell us a little bit about the research project? Yeah, yeah. So when I spoke before about the numbers that we know about in Australia, so that 12,000 kind of surgeries in the decade from 20, uh, 2003 to 2013, um, just under a quarter of those were performed on young women and girls. So um, it's not a nice, the way that Medicare breaks down the ages is not neat, but sort of in the five to 24 year age bracket. So it's quite a a large number are being done on young women and girls. And they don't feature prominently in what research, what little research does exist. So I'm interested in uh, the way that young women and girls sort of understand and make decisions around cosmetic genital surgery mm-hmm. yeah so it's a qualitative interview study mm-hmm. um yeah looking to sort of unpack what's going on for mm-hmm. for young people in this situation mm-hmm. um, and what has been some of your preliminary findings um that it's complicated <laughs> <laughs> start from there <laughs> yeah. so and and going back to the to the porn thing the, in the interviews i've done so far it doesn't porn doesn't feature as prominently as i thought it might mm. um and when women and when young women talk about um where they see you know sort of images of genitals it's usually not porn it's more likely to be those things like medical diagrams um, which is much more kind of banal but sort of still having an effect on the way that um, you know sort of young women have anxieties about how they look. Mm. Mm. Is there a certain age 
at which you can receive this surgery? Uh, yeah, so this, this varies sort of from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So, for example, in Queensland, you can't get cosmetic procedures uh, until you're over 18, but that's ah, right. not the same sort of between the states. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and just finally, if people mm. do want to, you know, find out more about your research um, or become a participant potentially in your study, how can they find out more? How can they get in touch? Yeah, they can get in touch. I have a website with the recruitment information. So that's labiatalk.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all it's all there. So I'm looking to talk to people who are currently aged 18 to 29 who had some genital appearance concerns as a young person mm-hmm. and went and saw a health professional about that. Mm-hmm. So. I'm actually just mm-hmm. Thinking quickly that I saw a really interesting um, article that you posted on Labia Talk, yeah. um, which was kind of, and we, I think that we were going to briefly discuss this in our alternative news section previously to this, mm. um, just about kind of vaginal products and mm. some of the, I don't know if you guys kind of went over that much, but um, just about, you know, glitter bombing mm. of vaginas <laughs> and other kinds of vaginal steams. Vaginal steams. <laughs> Can the vaginas get a break, please? <laughs> <laughs> if vaginas could talk, the stories yeah. they tell. Sorry, this is true. This yeah. is true. And the connection mm. between the, you know, getting labioplasty and and wanting to to buy these sorts of yeah. things. Yeah, mm. because they're all about you know tightening, changing, yeah. smells, restoring, yes, restoring femininity. Mm. Yeah. Yes, yeah. So there's there's lots of um, products that are marketed to women uh, that I think you know sort of are problematic in the sense that they're obviously untested so we don't really Mm -hmm. know what's in them Um, and also uh, marketed about doing things like sort of rejuvenation and tightening which are about men's pleasure Pleasure. as opposed to women's pleasure and I think that that's problematic. Yes Mm. and look at the words they use rejuvenation like it sounds like such a pleasurable like such a important procedure yeah Yeah. rejuvenation. And then they say like could help could help or may help and may then you have gynecologists right. saying that, that ah. it can lead to you know back bacterial infections yeah, yeah. and the, the whole tight, tightening as well it's like controlling women's bodies yeah. again everything's just mm. kept confined yes, and just but mm. marketed towards empowering women right yeah, disconnect Look at yeah. The, yeah. oh they're so cheeky <laughs> oh, i cannot We just heard from Emma Bernard, who's a researcher from the Centre for Health Equity at the University of Melbourne, about female genital cosmetic surgery. For more info about the Centre for Health Equity, jump on the Uni Melbourne website. Earlier, we heard from Julie Kun, CEO of WIRE, about the issues of pregnancy discrimination. For more information about this issue and WIRE more broadly, you can jump on the WIRE website. She walked towards you with her head down low. She wondered if there's a way out of the blue. Women on the Line is one of Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs programs. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email at womenontheline at gmail.com. Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website, 3cr.org.au slash womenontheline. The theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by Le Tigre. And the feature song for today's episode is She by the gorgeous Laura Mvula. Thank you for listening to Women on the Line. And thank you especially to Ayan, Ruby and George for their incredible interviews. I'm Arij Noor and I hope you can tune in again next time. She's tired, but she don't stop. Oh.